Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. More and more, leaders are using people analytics to improve recruitment and reduce attrition, two urgent priorities in the current climate. There is this misnomer that suddenly everyone in HR needs to become a data scientist or a statistician, but it's around the ability to ask the right questions, maybe work with the business to develop what hypotheses you can test with analytics. And then it's around communicating the insights and and driving the change in order to implement. That was David Green, expert in data-driven human resources and author of the book, Excellence in People Analytics, How to Use Workforce Data to Create Business Value. David, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Lucia. It's great to be on the show. So, David, we are closing in on two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's obviously been a massively challenging crisis that has put both lives and livelihoods at risk for employees across the globe. What has this crisis meant for the role of HR? Well, I suppose it's been HR's chance to shine. And in many companies, it has. An elevated role for the CHRO means more expectations on the function, you know, and a thirst for data to drive decisions around people, more interest from the C-level, you know, more demands from the C-level as well. Analytics teams have been more focused around employees and understanding how employees are feeling at the various stages of the pandemic and are building that into their approach to hybrid work. Brian? I think that the role of HR and the role of CHR is going to continue to be elevated for the next few years. The pandemic was a uniquely human event that affected individuals, that affected people. And now as we come back and we adjust to the new normal, HR has an opportunity to continue to step up, to continue to innovate, and continue to use data, facts, insight in how they guide and not just intuition. There's a little bit of watch what you wish for, because now while we are unbelievably front and center, with critical roles and critical pools and how are we going to respond to the return to the office, et cetera, that same light shines deficiencies in the function. And I think where maybe in the past we might have carried some folks who were pleasant or good order takers or good caretakers. And what we're demanding now around being numerate, understanding the value tree, really knowing how to use analytics, all that kind of stuff, it's all laid for bear now. So it is a wonderful time for the function, but I think the bar for individuals has been raised dramatically. I'm curious, in the U.S., we hear so much about what some are calling the great resignation and we are calling the great attrition, employees reassessing their priorities and quitting their jobs at record rates. David, how do you see this trend playing out in the U.K. and in Europe where you're based? There's a lot of column inches devoted to it here and in Europe as well although maybe not quite as much as in the US. What's interesting is we work with around 90 large global organisations, roughly about half of them which are headquartered in the US. The person I'm speaking to is usually the head of people analytics. They've had a lot of panicked executives saying, oh my God, everyone's leaving. When they actually look at their data, in most cases, it's not more than they would expect it to be. They're seeing the numbers maybe a little bit higher in some cases than 2019, but maybe what we would expect to be almost a correction from 2020. In most cases, certainly the companies that I've spoken to, they're not seeing the numbers that justify some of the the panic at the moment. I think what we are seeing is we are seeing some people that are choosing to leave the workforce and not necessarily go to another job. And so when you look in the US at workforce participation rates, they're down. And if you look at who is leaving, it's disproportionately women, and it is disproportionately people that are towards what a retirement age would be. But when we start looking at 
other populations, I think that's where having a real focus on the facts and the insights lets you solve the problems, be it around flexibility, comfort of coming to work, you know, whatever it may be. I think you're onto something there, which is to say, let's not necessarily paint a broad brush. Although we do see dissatisfaction broadly, let's really dive into who's leaving and why. One of the things I've been toying with, and I don't know that we have a great answer on it, the idea of do we have a fundamental reset almost on the offer? And I do think we're facing this moment where there's been a fixation on wages, but even as the wages have gone up, you know, in many cases, like our logistics and other places are now $25, $30 an hour, you're kind of missing the point. Yeah, okay, now I'm in the game. Who I work for, the conditions I work under, the nature of the interaction, feeling like if I'm going to leave people I've been with for two years taking care of, it has to be better. And I don't know, but I'm curious as to your experience of that part. It's like beyond the data, you know what I mean? This idea of a higher calling. I definitely think there's purpose that people want to have at work now is coming out and employee expectations of, of what they expect from work has gone up. It's been happening for a while, but maybe the pandemic's act as a bit of a catalyst to this. What I think is fascinating is, I mean, again, some of the research that you've been doing at McKinsey, there's a growing disconnect between executives around return to work and employees who aren't ready yet. Generally, there are large numbers that want more hybrid working moving forward. And I wonder if one of the consequences of the great resignation and all the press around it is that maybe some of these executives will start to be a bit more flexible and come closer to what employees are looking for around the hybrid workplace, which actually will benefit them in the long run. Maybe there'll be a good consequence of all the column inches that have been written about the great resignation. I like the way that you guys have kind of reframed it as it could be the great attraction depending on the way your company approaches it. Bill, are you seeing that shift in mindset among your clients? toward embracing or at least being more accepting of a hybrid culture? I think two thirds are still in the, it's either transitory or slowly they'll come to their senses and we're going to bring them back. And maybe a third wrapping their head around, well, this could be pretty interesting. David, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, you recently published a book on data-driven decision-making in HR. Tell us a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about people analytics and how people analytics helps HR leaders improve retention during this interval of churn. The book, Excellence in People Analytics, it's got 30 case studies of real-life people analytics examples in companies. There's a couple that touch on attrition. But in terms of what can people analytics do, I think that the key thing it can do is it can separate the signal from the noise. It can help organizations understand, do they actually have a problem with attrition? And if so, where? What job families? What locations? Is it people that have been tenured for a certain time? Is it certain groups? You know, as you've said, women are disproportionately leaving the workplace in comparison to others. If it's a problem, what can we do about it? If it's in parts of the business that we're either looking to divest or invest less in, then actually attrition can arguably be your friend. If it's in the areas of the business that you're really trying to grow and people are leaving and going to your competitors, then clearly it's a problem that you want to try and address. But you need to understand why people are leaving if they are leaving before you can actually even think about what you can do to solve it. Brian, do you want to speak to that a bit in the context of the great attrition, great attraction research that we did? There's a disconnect between what an employer thinks the main issue is the employer saying, hey, people must be leaving for another job, a better job and better pay. And what they're saying, which is, no, I'm leaving because I don't feel valued at work. Even asking the right questions and getting the right frame can, before you get more advanced forms of analytics on it, it just brings a broader fact base and broader lens to make sure we're having the right conversation. So I think where a really good people analytics function does is it combines the broad view. 
the broad understanding of organization research, the broad understanding of, you know, this is a field that's been around for a while. We know what motivates people and then brings that to bear to then highlight individual facts. We started getting the data back and I said, isn't there an interesting pattern here that all the things that the managers are saying are exogenous? The employee is maximizing for the money. My competitor is being foolish about raising the floor. It's this, it's that. Everything that was outside of them that allowed them to point the finger at someone else. When the things the employees were saying, it's just hold up the mirror and go, oh, I've caused this environment where they don't feel valued. They don't feel well looked after. They feel like, you know, they're, they're a piece of the machinery. Some of this was, it shouldn't have taken the perception of this many people were leaving. It shouldn't have taken having to close your restaurant in a prime hour. It shouldn't have taken not being able to serve people in distribution center before you go, well, maybe we're running the place poorly. I'm hopeful we can help that without maybe poking them in the eye so much, but maybe it takes a little poke in the eye. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft have published some research that they've been doing during the pandemic and yeah, they found out that managers are even more important in a remote or hybrid work environment. You know, they need to be checking in, need to be doing one-to-ones regularly, you know, and if they're not, don't be surprised if people get demotivated and decide to leave. So I think that's the job of people analytics. Then we can start doing something about attrition where it's a problem in organizations and start to nudge managers and leaders around behaviors that will actually encourage people to stay because they feel valued. They feel looked after. They're given a great employee experience. I mean, if you do these sorts of things, then people are going to be much less inclined to look elsewhere. You know, yes, people sometimes will get bought out of your company and given a 40% pay rise on a new job. You know, that's just going to happen. There's not much you can do about that. You can obviously make sure that you're paying market rates or above market rates if that's what you want to do. But I think by creating the right culture in the organization and making people feel valued, then you're going to keep people more than you lose. I think the point of the research in the middle manager is exactly what we're seeing from our clients. In the course of the pandemic, what we saw is there are some people that were naturally very good managers, knew how to check in, knew how to go to the run-on-ones. There on the other end of the spectrum, there are some people that never checked in. I mean, at one point during the pandemic, you know, there was a survey done and 40% of those employees surveyed said that no one had called to check in on them, no manager individual. And of those people, they were 40% more likely to be exhibiting some sign of mental distress. And so I think companies are recognizing that and now saying, hey, if the role of the manager got elevated during the pandemic, what does it mean in a hybrid world? And I think a number of organizations are now really seeing, gosh, if it mattered when everybody was remote, doesn't it matter at least as much, if not more, when we've got a mixed, some in the office, some remote, don't we need to have those one-on-one coaching skills? as well as an intentionality of when we're all coming together as a team, when we're separated. That's where people analytics teams come in with, you know, employee listening, you know, regular pulse surveys, looking at some of the passive data as well. And they they can see by looking at some of the metadata, they can see managers that are checking in regularly with their employees and understanding the behaviors that drive engagement, that drive performance from their teams. David, in our Women in the Workplace research, we saw that women managers were much likelier than men managers to call to see how their reports were doing. We also know from our and other research that women and people of color have been among the most affected during the pandemic and that they're likelier, in particular, people of color are likelier than white employees to attribute quitting to a lack of a sense of belonging in the organization. Do you see analytics as playing a role in promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace? 
Yeah, we conduct some annual research amongst over 100 organizations this year. And one of the questions we asked was, what are the top three areas in your organization where people analytics is adding the most value? And diversity, equity, inclusion came out top. 54% of respondents included that in their top three. And that's gone up significantly since we did that research last year. And you know, we're seeing that people analytics is really helping organizations move between counting diversity to measuring inclusion. You know, and I think we're still at the early stages of that. In many respects, companies are starting to understand the importance of inclusion and belonging. Uh, they're measuring it in surveys, but they've got people analytics teams that can be on top of that as well. And I think secondly, by looking at some of this passive network analysis as well, you can start to understand links and strength of relationships within teams and between teams as well. I think that is helping this desire from leaders is actually we want to be better at diversity, equity and inclusion. And also the expectations of the employees. We want our organization to be better at diversity, equity and inclusion. That pivot towards instead of just observing or describing the problem on a sense and moving upstream and saying, what's the felt experience? That really encouraged us to go back and look at how we were measuring inclusion and not just do like a few engagement questions, but say, okay, sense of the org overall, what I'm personally experiencing, company, team, manager. And that, when you really look at it, it is remarkable. And I think you were getting at even some of the intersectionality stuff. For us, it's not just the basic demographic category. It's like, What's the combination of these categories that really have these microcultures and how they're either perceived as in or out in the broader thing? I'm just curious. And when you think about the advanced math, you know, how do you get to some of these insights without losing people in the math? Because I certainly some of our clients, you get some really cool quant jocks and they lose everyone on the third word. It's turning that complex math into a compelling story that's going to resonate with whichever audience you're delivering it to and what impact that has on the objectives. In addition to the kind of active-based network analysis that's been going on for years, we now have the technology to do this at scale with passive, looking at some of the metadata. Of course, you need to be careful around the ethics and the privacy and making sure there's benefit for employees, of course, around that as well. But you're right, you've got to take that quite complicated insights and you've got to turn it into a compelling story that drives action that you can then measure. We had taken our new inclusion assessment and put it in our inaugural race in the workplace survey. Our focus was on black leaders in corporate America. So looking at their black workforce, what became clear is that more black workers in corporate America were leaving before they ever got promoted. But the numbers were so small in terms of the absolute, that it may be out of every 100 workers, you might have had one or two more black workers than expected leave and one or two fewer white workers. So from a consciousness standpoint, an individual manager wouldn't pick it up. But then when you look at the data, you say, huh, this is like an invisible revolving door. What's going on in there? That's something an executive says, okay, I now know what I need to do with our new entry-level diverse talent. I know I need to focus on that. Now let me go back and figure out again, with the next level of detail, what are the levels of initiatives? How do I check up on it? How do I follow up? Yeah. And I think the other thing about network analytics, I've seen a few examples where high performing women who don't have strong networks at the senior level, don't get promoted, leave the organization. Men who are quite good, generally speaking, I think the academic research backs this up, at changing their network as they move up an organization, we're getting promoted. When you actually make that aware to people, then they might change their behaviors and consciously build those networks. David, you said something earlier uh, that was interesting, talking about the challenges with privacy. I'm just curious, when you think about the US has some challenges on the data front, often around security and what you're doing with hashing and things like that. Europe, I've always found to be way more sensitive to the idea of a big brother-ish tracking my movements. 
And I'm just curious, you know, in, in your experience, what's the balance there? Because the insight you can get from it is pretty awesome. Yeah, I, and I think you're right. There is a balance there. I think, you know, any organization that wants to do something like that, it's probably a case to start small and be transparent right from the start and actually think about what's the benefit for the employees? What are, what are the benefits that we're trying to drive out of this? What is a business problem we're trying to solve? So you've got to speak to your privacy team. You've got to work with works councils in Europe, you know, be able to clearly articulate what the benefit is for employees and how you're going to protect that data. And it can be frustrating, I guess, from time to time because it's, it, it slows up the process at the start. But as you said, you can get some really, really rich insights out of some of these technologies. Now, are you seeing a link now between people analytics team and the real estate teams? I mean, we're hearing a lot of organizations start to ask, what should the workspace look like? What does it do? Are you seeing you know, the linkages across the teams or are they existing in silos? Yeah, definitely starting to see that, particularly in the companies that are maybe more advanced in people analytics. They are bringing exactly that sort of data together and they're thinking, okay, in some parts of the world now, our people are back in the office, but we've got these hybrid work models in place now. People are using the office differently. We need to measure how people are using the office and then redesign the workplaces with intention. So yes, definitely starting to see that. And I think we'll see more of that in the next 18 months, two years. It is interesting, the usage of space. You know, early, geez, I think this might have been six months ago, Brian, I don't remember. And then you and I had a run of these like webinars and there was a fellow who was an architect from Atlanta talking about repurposing the space and so much of it was around flexibility. I think the general consensus was we'd been on this like two, three decade long run about increasing the density and lowering the square footage per person and perfectly happy when we had tele and remote workers. And now actually we may need to go a little bit in another direction and pay a little bit more for configurability if we're talking about like individual work team-based work or even like mass lecture hall kind of communication. It just feels interesting that the, the people agenda now is almost stemming the tide of what have been dramatically increasing spans of bosses, increasing the density of office space, you know, hoteling, not your own thing. So much of it had almost gone unchecked. And now we're saying, hey, time out. If we want to bring them back, we've got to use it differently. I've often found Europe often having a bit more intervention on things like sunlight, like in Holland for offices, wherever. Are you seeing that? Or is it that maybe like a US thing, we're just late to the party? We're definitely seeing that. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Part of understanding people is understanding how they use the workspaces. You know, if we can make the workspaces more productive, then that's good. People become more productive, hopefully more engaged. And again, back to the question about the attrition piece, again, maybe less likely to leave as well. What's the role of analytics in helping HR leaders fill this surging volume of open roles as folks quit and the talent gap widens? The two big use cases of people analytics going back years has been attrition and recruiting. So it's almost like coming back full circle now in, in many respects. And I think now these people analytics teams have got access to technology that can really help them around here. We're using analytics to automate parts of the recruitment process, which in many respects actually widens the funnel. So maybe, you know, if you've hired, I don't know, for your leadership program and you've traditionally gone to eight big schools in the US, by actually automating that potential, you can actually open it up and get a more diverse set of people applying in the first place, which is obviously good. One big investment bank that I spoke to recently, they're using analytics to help hiring managers understand that if they go with this set of requirements, and these education, the experience that they want to put on their role profiles, how many applicants they're likely to get. And if they tweak one or two things, how that might make a bit of a change to the applicants and how if they maybe change the language that they're using in the advert, they might actually get more female applicants, for example, if they're looking for a software engineer. So I think analytics is playing a big, big role in that. You know, you can look at analytics across the recruitment process. You can start to see where we might be 
suffering significant candidate drop-off. We can start to understand, do we have a problem around offer to accept? You know, and then, then I would argue that recruiting doesn't stop once the person starts. You know, you need to think about onboarding. You need to think about understanding where managers are having one-to-one with new starters in the first one week, two weeks. Does that have an impact on people's time to productivity? Does that have a time on first-year attrition, et cetera, et cetera? So I think there's so much that analytics can play. And then the other bit that I haven't mentioned is around bringing some of that external data in as well to understand things like supply of talent, demand of talent, locations where we might want to hire talent, particularly now hybrids kind of potentially opening the game around that as well. One thing you said that I wanted to jump on, the description of the job as a way of making it more appealing to candidates. But that one right there, the way you describe it as making it more attractive, I had not even considered that. And it should feel like marketing 101, but what a wonderful idea. I'm assuming the lexicon you're using triggers different behavior. That's great. Yeah, I mean, they're using natural language processing to understand words that may put off female applicants or other groups. There's academic research out there which says the more bullet points you put on a job description, men will apply if they meet half of them. Women tend to not apply unless they feel they meet at least 90% of them. So so the more bullet points, the more, more you can have a very sort of biased male slate, perhaps. So it is a fascinating space, definitely. How have you seen organizations navigate and manage through all of the new cool offerings and make sure that they pick the types of data and the types of insight that will matter most to them, not just the one that kind of seemed cool to the person who heard about it on a podcast? You probably need someone in your team who's spending probably half their time scanning the market and understanding the market, trying to get proof of concepts in, you know, a lot of the smaller vendors will do that. But you're right, it's not this. And now the regulators are coming in. I've seen there's regulation in New York recently around um, using AI in the hiring process. The EEOC in the US are are looking into it as well, aren't they? They're understanding around the use of algorithms in, in hiring and in people management generally. But of course, the most important thing is you've got to make sure that what they're telling you is actually valid you've got to be careful around things around bias, particularly, you know, if you've got a problem with diversity in your organization, you don't want to perpetuate that through hiring as well. Last question. Where do HR leaders stand in terms of their own skills in data-driven decision-making? Do you see that there's work to be done there? I think there's work to be done. They did the same survey we did at Insight 222. We actually did a focus around data-driven culture. So over 100 companies that participated, 90% said that their CHRO had now communicated that people analytics was a core component of HR strategy. But only 42% said that their companies have a data-driven culture for HR at the moment. You could argue that the first sign is that the CHRO says it's important. They use this data in their conversations with executives, maybe celebrates people in the HR team that are showing data as well. So as they're setting that as example to other, make it very clear that it's expected, but we will help you. We will provide the tools and the means to do it. We'll create communities of practice so people can support learning with each other and we'll let you practice it. You know, you might not be successful the first few times you do it. And obviously there's technologies that are coming in that are enabling the organizations to democratize the data, both to HR business partners who are particularly important in this piece, but also to managers in the business as well. This is a big change for HR. So you've got to bring in the change management and support people through that process. Data literacy is a core skill that they need to have. I think HR is well on the journey. I think we now have an understanding that HR is no longer just in the business of feeling good about people. It is in the business of bringing data, facts, and insight onto the people side of work. And I think there is a a real understanding and appreciation of that across the board. 
And so what we're doing is we're shifting the skills of a set of folks that used to deal with transactional issues, may have used to dealt with investigations, dealt with a number of things that required a different skill set. And now we're shifting them to, hey, not just having the data literacy, but being able to ask the right questions, be able to synthesize in the right way, and be able to come and compellingly advocate for solutions. And I think that's where we're seeing the next push on analytics isn't just on the analytics, but it's how to equip the team to use it. Yeah, that's absolutely key. There is this misnomer that suddenly everyone in HR needs to become a data scientist or a statistician. But as you said, it's around the ability to ask the right questions, maybe work with the business to develop what hypotheses you can test with analytics. And then it's around communicating the insights and, and driving the change in order to implement. Let's close there. David, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. See you next time. Be well. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well. <laughs>